a tunnel in the night, fighting with words and numbers, longing for daylight. A tunnel in the night, fighting with words and numbers, longing for daylight. Welcome to EU Confidential, coming to you from a special summit of the European Council, which is grappling late into the night with the trillion euro question. That's very roughly what the EU budget will probably amount to over the next seven years. But exactly how big the pie will be and how it will be sliced is what the 27 EU leaders are fighting over with Council President Charles Michel tonight. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and the voice you heard at the top of the podcast was Herman von Rompuy, former European Council president, who was in charge of negotiating the budget back in 2013. He likes to write haiku poems, and he wrote that one about the EU budget negotiations, especially for Politico. We caught up with him earlier this week to get his behind-the-scenes take on what it takes to strike a budget deal. And in this episode, you'll also hear from Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, Luxembourg's Prime Minister Xavier Bettel, Latvian Prime Minister Christians Karins, High Representative for Foreign Affairs Josep Borrell, and Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz, all of whom spoke to Politico ahead of the summit. Now, to help us navigate it all, we have Lily Beyer, our resident budget expert. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. So, you've been covering uh, the budget debate for nearly two years now, and now it's, it's coming down to the crunch. So, let's just try to, to break down what is a very uh, complex, kind of multi-dimensional battle that's going on here. First, Lily, what are the key questions that need to be resolved? What are the big sticking points here? And then let's talk about who are the kind of key players in those battles. So, what are, what are the big questions they have to resolve tonight? The first big question is the size of the future budget. So some countries, more frugal ones, want a budget of 1% of the EU27's gross national income. Others, especially in Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, want a bigger budget. Uh, the second big question is how the pie will be sliced. So whether more money will go to what's called traditional programs like agriculture and regional development, or whether more money will be spent on modern programs like research, innovation, and student exchanges. A third huge fight is over what are called rebates, so deductions to what some countries, wealthy countries, pay into the EU budget. And a fourth big one is the rule of law, whether EU funding will be tied to respect for rule of law criteria. Okay, and some of the issues that you're talking about there, some of the, the challenges are the same ones that have been uh, in the budget debate for many years and in previous budget debates. And uh, Herman von Rompuy talked a bit about that when you spoke to him earlier uh, this week. Let's hear a little bit of his recollection of, of how the different camps broke down last time. We had the same problem uh, in 2012 and 2013 when I negotiated uh, the European budget. You had the friends of cohesion and you had the net contributors. So we have to find the balance between between those two interests. Huh? The bridges has to have to be built and it is not impossible. The, the evidence is that we succeeded. We finally found uh, an, an agreement and rather rapidly. Uh, we did it in two meetings. One, I think, in November 2012 
and one in the beginning of uh, February 2013. So we didn't succeed in one go. We needed two meetings of the European Council. The last one lasted for around 30 hours. The big difference between the current situation and the situation I had to handle was the presence of the UK. So as Herman von Rompuy just mentioned, the UK is a big issue in budget talks again, but it's present in a different way from in previous years. So Lily, just explain to us um, how the absence of the UK impacts these negotiations. With the UK gone, there's a gap of about 75 billion euros over seven years. And what this means is that countries that have already traditionally been frugal about the EU budget, like the Netherlands, are facing an even bigger bill than they would have with the UK there. So instead of the UK shouldering some of the burden, the other countries, especially Germany, the Netherlands and Denmark, are fearing that it will be them and their taxpayers that will have to fill in the gap. All of these things are at the same time also interlinked and uh, Herman von Rompuy laid out for us a few of the other uh, complications that are at play this time around. The situation is uh, much more complicated than it was uh, in, uh, in my time so to speak. Already at that time uh, People told me this is mission impossible to reach an agreement on a seven-year budget. But uh, I think that they can say it today with much more arguments than in 2012-2013. You have, of course, the gap, the budgetary gap after Brexit. Uh, somebody has to pay. Uh, you have this delicate question about the link between rule of law and structural funds. I don't know uh, what the exact proposals of uh, the President of the European Council are, uh, but I know on principle that it's a big, big issue. It's very difficult to make it operational. Then you have these major shifts, let's say, that we faced already seven years ago, less on cohesion and less on agriculture and more on the new challenges, climate change, migration, defense, competitiveness, uh, research and development. So this, this shift which we managed to do in the current budget, we have to do it even more today. So it, it is, it's quite, quite a difficulty uh, much more than in my time. So when he succeeded, uh, I will really congratulate him because it, it, it will be a major achievement. So now coming into this summit, the size of the budget is still in question. Some leaders have expressed frustration that they can't really comment on the content of the budget without first agreeing on its size. And that's a point the Prime Minister of Latvia, Christianis Karins, made to us when we caught up with him a few weeks ago. If the potential budget size is between 1 or 1.7 or 1.3, those are tremendous differences in actual amounts of money, uh, which if, if there's more money in the system, then uh, it changes a little bit um, uh, everyone's thinking about it. If there's less money in the system, it's again another approach. Uh, so first, we really need to uh, 
come to a consensus of how big the budget will be. And then uh, the other steps become mm, difficult, but at least more straightforward because you have a, a concrete and unmoving point of reference. Right now we have every, every aspect is moving, size of budget and potential distribution of budget. And Karen's links the debate over the size of the budget to the goals of the European Union more broadly. What we need uh, is a number which is big enough for us to attain our goals. If we want to go to climate neutrality in 2050, I think we, certainly my country wants to, and uh, the vast majority of member states now are at least an idea committed to this, we have to invest in that number. You cannot just state and then non-invest. So if you need to invest, you need money to invest. It seems pretty straightforward. But Herman von Rompuy says that at the end of the day, these negotiations are usually not about grand plans for Europe, but more about how leaders can show their own citizens how they got the best deal out of the negotiations. They are not so much negotiating about uh, the, the big objectives, objectives of the European budget. Uh, it's, it, it's about what they can take from the budget and what they can... Uh, but what they have uh, to give to the budget, so to speak. Uh, I'm, I'm drawing a, a caricature of the situation, and I'm very much aware of that, I'm very much aware of that, but I'm not too far from reality. The objectives have to be defined by the Commission, and of course the President of the European Council uh, has also to formulate in his compromise uh, agreement of a compromise proposal has to keep uh, the, that's the strategic goals. But the member states are more concerned about their national interest and their net balance. And here at the summit, you can really tell that leaders are playing to the home crowd. We saw this earlier today as the presidents and prime ministers streamed in to do what are known as doorsteps in the trade, stopping on the way in to give brief statements to reporters. Many leaders passed right by foreign media, said little or nothing in any foreign language, and instead they headed straight for journalists from their home countries to deliver their messages to the audiences back home. Here, for example, is our attempt to try to speak with the Prime Minister of Greece, uh, Kyriakos Mitsotakis. Prime Minister, do you have a word for Politico? One, one sentence? Optimistic? Two words for Politico. Cautiously optimistic from the Greek Prime Minister. But we did manage to catch a few of the leaders who spoke exclusively to Politico. And let's start with some of the more frugal countries. Uh, Lily, remind us again uh, who they are and uh, what they want, what their target is from the negotiations. So the most frugal countries are the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden and Austria. Their goal is to get a budget that is the equivalent of 1% of the EU27 gross national income. And all of the four countries are also asking for corrections, which is a polite term for a rebate, that is a reduction to what they pay in to the national budget. They also favor modernization of the budget, that is, they don't really like that the EU spends so much of its cash on regional development and agriculture. Right, and the person who's kind of emerged as the kind of leader of, of that group is Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte. And uh, I caught up with him uh, just before the summit started. Why are you insisting on 1.0 of GNI? And do you think that will be the, the final result? I hope so. And why? Uh, because um, for the reasons I've stated so many times, the budget is not really changing. Still one third 
to agricultural policies, one-third cohesion and structural funds, only one-third to the other chapters, and the Dutch will be hit by Brexit. Uh, we have been hit by the refugee crisis, so, uh, and, and we still pay a lot more. Eh? We still will see our budget increase with inflation and with economic growth. Another leading figure among the frugals is Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz. Uh, let's hear what he had to say. Can you just explain why you tried to insist on 1.0 and do you still insist on 1.0? Our position is clear and our position has not changed. Uh, our position uh, is still the same. Um, we have a strong cooperation with the other net payer countries and we hope that it, in the end it will be possible to reach an agreement. I think it is necessary for the European Union uh, to reach this agreement. Thank you. So just, uh, Lily, just to be clear, when uh, Kurtz talks about net payers, uh, that is, of course, a slightly controversial term, but, but uh, tell us what it means and why uh, he and others use it. Well, a general definition of a net payer is a country that pays more into the EU's coffers than what it gets back. But the term is quite disputed, and the European Commission in particular has been arguing that it's impossible to calculate how much a member state gets out of the EU budget because a lot of the benefits are not really tangible. So, for example, um, EU spending on border security in a place like Greece does help a country like Austria, but it's very difficult to quantify what that help means in cash terms. Right. And, but then you have other countries who want the budget to be more ambitious, and uh, that can mean different things to, to different people. Lily, what, when people say, you know, we want a more ambitious uh, budget, what are some of the, you know, when we decode that, what are some of the things they're actually saying? Ambitious in Brussels is generally a code term for spending more money. Uh, countries that want a bigger budget generally ask for spending on regional development and agriculture to at least stay at its current levels. So at the levels before Brexit, they don't want uh, popular projects and subsidies for farmers to be impacted by the UK's exit. And then there are countries also that want to be ambitious in the sense that they want to spend on programs like research and innovation. They want to spend more on student exchanges, on the space program, on security, on defense research. So it really depends who you ask. Generally, if you talk to politicians from Western Europe, for them, ambition means spending more on those modern programs. Um, and if you talk to those um, in the East and the South, for them, ambitious is generally more spending on traditional programs at current levels. Right, and basically a, a bigger a bigger overall budget quite often. So someone who's in favour of or, you know, spending more, someone who said he was... Uh, more in favour of the European Commission's original proposal, which is larger than the one that's on the table today from uh, Charles Michel, is Xavier Bettel, the uh, Prime Minister of Luxembourg. And uh, we caught up with him before the summit uh, started. And although some of us are expecting that this could go for days, he wasn't too pessimistic about how long things would last. How do you feel about today? How, are you braced for how many shirts have you brought? Let's start with that. I have two shirts. Okay, so you don't think it's going to last too long? I always prefer, I never know when I have dinner or lunch, maybe I also do some yeah. tasha, so I uh, <laughs> need to have another uh, in exchange. But you, you never know. Do you expect this to be two days, three days, four days? I don't know. The time would be needed. I hope that uh, if we are reasonable, but my, my problem is for the moment that uh, I strongly believe that uh, if we want to be ambitious, we need to be also more ambitious in the budget. And for the moment, 
it's not the state of mind of some of my colleagues. Does this ambitious mean that it should be bigger or that the divisions within the budget should bigger, change? Bigger, we can't, you know, I, I don't know uh, how uh, Jean-Michel should uh, do more things with uh, less persons and less money. I'm not the advocate of the European civil service, but without civil servants uh, and without money, it's difficult to have a more efficient uh, digital agenda, immigration agenda, Erasmus agenda, security agenda, etc., etc. So we need to be ambitious. And the problem is also that for a lot of people, Europe is just how much it costs, but they forgot what it brings. And uh, for me, for example, I think it's one euro fifty every day for citizens and it brings us liberty, democracy, freedom, uh, freedom of speech, freedom to move, the euro, the, the fact that I have no border, studying everywhere, getting health care, we forget that. And so it's not only what I pay or what I give, it's also what I have. Mm-hmm. Do you have any red lines for as Luxembourg? I don't like red lines because this means, for me, it's, it's, we we need to be able to discuss about everything, but it needs to be ambitious and it should. The rule of law is important for us. Uh, uh, the, the Green Deal is important for us. But if we dis, if we say A, we also need to say B, like we say in French. So uh, we cannot decide things and then don't give us the the, the opportunities to do it. That was Xavier Bettel, Prime Minister of Luxembourg. And we should point out, it's not just member states who have an opinion on the budget. We also asked the High Representative for Foreign Affairs, Josep Borrell, what's important to him from a foreign policy point of view. Well, I think the budget uh, from the point of view of security and defence is lacking ambition. It's not at the level of the ambition that we are claiming, that we want to do. If you want to be a player, you have to pay a price. And, uh, well, we need more defense, security, building capacity, being present in the world. We live in a dangerous world, the European Union has to be more present, and this requires resources. So let's see what the discussion is bringing. And we caught up with the President of the Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. What are you hoping from, from the summit, and how long do you think it will take? It's going to be tough negotiations. Um, I am happy that the proposal... Uh, puts a strong emphasis on uh, the political flagships, that is the European Green Deal and making Europe fit for the digital age. So uh, 25% of the budget are mainstreamed uh, for the European Green Deal. Um, So this is good, but uh, we will have to defend the modernization of the budget. I think Europe needs a modern budget in order to embrace the future. So Ursula von der Leyen talking there about modern priorities, modern budget. What's that code for when when she and others talk about a modern budget? What do they mean? When Ursula von der Leyen specifically uses the words modern budget, she generally refers to a budget that has sufficient cash in it for her big projects. That is the European Green Deal and also some projects having to do with digitalization and uh, innovation. So she is very, very scared right now that after making all these big speeches and unveiling all these grand programs, that the European Council will simply not approve sufficient funding to make those programs a reality and a success. So she's really in a tight spot and that's why she was here to try to lobby leaders to help her make uh, her pledges a reality. Right, and uh, as Ursula von der Leyen mentioned, and and Lily just also mentioned as well, one of her priorities is digital 
And uh, the other big story in Brussels this week was the release of a kind of digital package by the European Commission, laying out its vision of the way forward on artificial intelligence, on creating what is known as a single market for data, a sort of policy roadmap on Europe's digital future. And I spoke with our technology editor, Nick Vinegar, uh, about this, and we start out discussing the idea of a single market for data, where industrial players would share their data with startups, the public sector, or other enterprises, in order to make Europe the go-to place for high-quality data that could be used, for example, to create artificial intelligence tools. That's certainly the vision. Um, how that becomes a reality is is obviously where the trouble is and where all the difficulty lies. Um, you'd have to convince private companies to share their data and open access to, uh, to their competitors. Uh, and that is very, very far from being a done deal. There's also a big aspect of protecting European citizens and protecting their data um, and moving ahead with sort of ethical rules on, on AI. Uh, but that presupposes you have the technology to regulate. And, and that's the big challenge here. And what can the can the commission actually, you know, force companies to do that, or, or is a lot of this just kind of using their platform, or are there things they can actually do, you know, through legislation or other things to kind of make this happen? Uh, I think that is probably the biggest question um, after the rollout of these plans. Crucially, these are non-binding documents; they lay out uh, ambitions and strategies, but they don't kind of put anything into into law. Um, so what we're going to see now between now and let's say, you know, the end of the year with the Digital Services Act is just a big, big flurry of lobbying um, that's either going to aim to kill off some of the ideas about data sharing or make them acceptable to industry. For example, you know, if you're, if you're talking about the car sector, they might ask that their data is put in a kind of a clearinghouse where they can choose who gets access to it. Because BMW may not want Mercedes to have access to their data, or maybe a Toyota to have access to their data. So Mark Zuckerberg was in town this week. Does any of this affect you know, the way he does business? Does, does he or anybody else have anything to, to kind of fear or celebrate from, from this approach? Yeah, definitely on on the open data, um, that's going to affect uh, tech companies as well. Um, There is an ambition to make the Facebooks and the Googles and the Amazon open up their data and share with uh, smaller companies. There's also a big aspect on sort of data protection and securing data, and that could have a knock-on effect on uh, on those companies because they could be forced to um, store more of their data in the European Union. We had a whole story about that that went out at the same time, and we saw one of the big uh, U.S. tech lobbies lashing out against that proposal. So it's definitely it definitely struck a nerve. Um, I think where Facebook is going to be more directly impacted is by uh, the Digital Services Act, which comes out at the end of the year, which is really about content regulation and and their responsibilities uh, as a platform. Um, So they have a lot to worry about or or be concerned about in in the European Union, which explains why he went to see Margaret Vestager for the first time. He personally went into the commission and kind of lobbied these people. Um, That sort of explains why why that's it. And then there's ongoing competition cases, too, um, with uh, Facebook. And do do we have any kind of impression as to where different countries in the EU stand, or is this kind of broadly wel- welcomed across the board by by member states, or is it too early to kind of say where where they all are landing on this? 
Yeah, I think we're at a stage now where things are kind of broad enough that they can be consensual and that a lot of countries sign on to the vision of, you know, more data sharing and a big kind of single market for for data. Um, Where it's going to become difficult is when you get into compelling specific sectors, specific companies to open up and share. And there you might start running into resistance from, you know, a German car sector, a French banking sector. Um, There's definitely already a lot of pushback that we can see uh, from those folks. Um, Then you have the whole kind of openness versus protectionism side of it with, um, you know, people saying, well, uh, the Nordics or, or, or you know, when this is going to tie into the industrial strategy uh, with the French and the Germans saying, well, we need to create European champions and the, broadly speaking, northern European countries, free trading countries uh, saying, well, actually, you know, our best asset is is this level playing field and the competition rule. So that's a that's a big conflict that's going to play out. That was our technology editor, Nick Vinicker, talking to me uh, earlier in the week. And now you're back with us at the summit, the European Council summit in Brussels, uh, the big budget summit. Lily, what are the next steps in these negotiations? Where are we right now as we record and how do we expect things to play out? Uh, Right now, as we're recording, Jean-Michel is locked in a room somewhere in a building next to ours uh, doing a series of bilateral meetings with every single head of state or government. And after that series of meetings, we don't know when it'll end. It's possible he will do another set of meetings this time around with the more problematic member states. Those that are hardest to convince and to bring on board for a compromise. And after assessing everyone's positions and where they are, his team might put forward a revised blueprint, budget blueprint. In uh, jargon, we call it a negotiating box. It's about a 54-page document outlining what the budget compromise might look like. And once his team puts that forward, the leaders, perhaps in the morning, could discuss this revised document. But it's still a bit unclear. Things are really up in the air. What we know for sure is that Charles Michel is sitting down and trying to convince leaders one by one uh, to come to some kind of compromise. Right. So we're still really waiting to see how this is going to play out and how long the summit may last. There's talk that it may go into the weekend. We'll have to see. Let's get an early uh, impression of how things were going from the Estonian Prime Minister, Yuri Ratas, who uh, Lily found wandering around uh, the press centre earlier on. What are chances of a deal at this summit? From our side, of course, we are we are ready to, to find the compromise, but... Uh, but I think it's a very good idea from Charles Michel's side to have now these bilateral meetings and and after that I think the picture is a little bit a little bit more clear. Do you think the problem is the frugals? No, I think there are quite different views today. But let's see. Thank you. Thank you. So whenever they come to a deal, whether it's at this summit or uh, next one, is that the end of the process, Lily, or, or what still happen, has to happen next before the new budget actually takes effect? So coming to a deal, a unanimous deal in the European Council is the biggest hurdle to a seven-year budget, but it's definitely not the end of the road. So after that happens, it's up to the European Parliament to either greenlight it or reject it. That's all they get to do, vote yes or no. Um, There might be a bit of an informal negotiation. Before they do that, the Parliament might make a few demands. 
But I think the general expectation is that the parliament will approve the budget. And in parallel, there will also be negotiations on regulations for new programs, new spending programs. Um, that will be a lot of technical work, a lot of politicking behind the scenes, and that may take some months. Um, but at the end of that process, we'll have uh, a completed budget. Right. So the big first step is to get a deal among the leaders. And why don't you tell us uh, the legend of how Van Rompuy managed to, to get a deal seven years ago? Well, legend has it that at the very end of the negotiation, he went around the table and asked every leader what their uh, final demand is. And one thing to keep in mind is that these budget negotiations, when it gets to the very last minute, that 4 a.m., very last session, it's usually about what we like to call gifts. So the president of the European Council traditionally keeps uh, a few billion euros on the side till the very end of the negotiation. And then leaders ask for money for pet projects. And then um, they, they get special allocations to win their final support. OK, let's hear Van Rompuy's recollection of, of how it went down last time. I remember the, the last round uh, where we were all together. Uh, for the rest of the meeting, actually it was not a meeting, there were a lot of bilaterals, but we were together in the, at the final stage and there were three or four countries who still had problems. And I think I solved the problems uh, one by one, but there were one or two uh, who couldn't agree. And I said, you have to take it or to leave it and uh, they left, so to speak, their, their demands. And when the last finally said yes, I said, the shop is closed now. And I was applauded by all the leaders that the very first time I had uh, an ovation in the European Council. Everyone was so tired they wanted to go home. They were tired. They were tired. They were fed up. Uh, and of course, they, they, the last demands were demands that were not that important. But some prime ministers thought that they needed that kind of last concession uh, to convince their parliament. But at the end, it went well. So, Lily, did Herman van Rompuy have any advice for his successor, Charles Michel, another former Belgian prime minister, on how he might get a standing ovation of his own? Uh, he did tell him not to get too desperate if he doesn't succeed the first time. Don't be desperate when you don't succeed Thursday or Friday. I heard that he gave an, as an advice to his colleagues uh, buy a, a, a second or third shirt uh, because you will need it uh, during the weekend. I don't think that prime ministers and presidents are impressed by that kind of threat. Huh? My advice would be if we don't succeed this weekend, you have to try a second time. I also did. And I succeeded the second time. And all depends on the progress you can make the first time. If you can get a consensus, all the better. All the better. If you don't try to have a landing zone that is not too much controversial and not, and not too much polarized, then better than to stop in time before that, that kind of anger started to, to work. But again, I hope that he will find a consensus. But there is 
is not a disgrace when you have to do it in two attempts. Finally, people and history, to use a very strong word, will forget easily the procedure. They will only remember the final result. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We leave you with the budget negotiations still going on and likely to go on for hours, if not days yet. If there's a deal soon after we publish this podcast, we'll come back with a special update. Otherwise, we'll be back next week with plenty of analysis of what went down here. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you heard, be sure to click some stars or write a review. I'm Andrew Gray at the European Council Summit in Brussels. A special thanks to Lily Bayer and our producer Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.